Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Where Did the Beat Go? Pink's 2012 album, The Truth About Love, which was co-written and co-produced by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Billy Mann. Two-time Grammy nominee Billy Mann released a couple of solo albums as an artist via A&M Records in the mid-1990s before finding success as a songwriter in the European market. He eventually returned to the U.S. and began getting his songs recorded by artists such as Celine Dion, Dakota Moon, and Daryl Hall and John Oates, who made Do It For Love Billy's first number one Billboard single as a songwriter in 2002. Other artists who charted with Billy's songs in this era include Michael Bolton, Art Garfunkel, and Jim Brickman. He soon began finding hits with a new wave of pop stars, beginning with Jessica Simpson's top 20 single, With You. Around the same time, he became a frequent collaborator with Pink, who has included many of Billy's compositions on her albums, including God is a DJ, Stupid Girls, Dear Mr. President, I'm Not Dead, Glitter in the Air, and The Truth About Love. He has worked with a variety of artists, including Cher, Sting, John Legend, Kelly Rowland, Ricky Martin, Backstreet Boys, Martina McBride, Alan Stone, Josh Groban, and others. In addition to his efforts as a songwriter and producer, Mann is a respected music executive. After forming his own stealth entertainment, he went on to become a president at both EMI and BMG Rights Management. He is currently chairman and CEO of Green and Bloom Top Line, a hybrid record label and publishing company. He balances his business activities with his own creative efforts and philanthropic initiatives, which he calls the pursuit of the hit life over the hit song. You know, I've got a lot of friends that have either written for Billy at his publishing company or worked with him in some kind of capacity. I feel like I've heard his name over and over again. It was great to actually get a chance to sit down and talk to him. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, A guy who has really had a a varied career as an executive, as a songwriter, as a producer. Uh, I think one of the things that interested me most that he was talking about was... um, he spent time in, in Sweden yeah, in, a lot. in like the late nineties and uh, some of the kind of mainstream producers here in the U S at the time were kind of like, what are you doing in Sweden? Right. <laughs> you know? Um, but it made me think of this book. I just started reading. It's called uh, the song machine inside the hit factory by a guy named John Seabrook. And I bought the book because I heard a, an interview with this guy on NPR the other day. And he is um, a staff writer for the New Yorker. And he basically goes into how pop music has been completely revolutionized in the last 20 years or so and how it started with these Swedish producers, you know, Max Martin being the most well-known who, you know, all the Katy Perry and Britney Spears and and Rihanna and, you know, so many of these um, huge hits. Yeah. 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 You could just every like pop superstar. um, It all kind of started in Sweden. And I, I was particularly interested that, um, Billy was talking about that because he seems like the sort of person who in his career has been looking forward, like yeah. what's about to happen. Yes. Um, yeah. But Billy was definitely ahead of the curve as far as that kind of stuff goes. I mean, I imagine at that time in the early nineties, the, the concept of Sweden was probably Swedish meatballs, <laughs> ABBA, Ikea, Swedish fish. Yeah. If Ikea was even around then, but 
But now I think anybody who's in the know understands that Sweden has become a real force in pop music. Yeah, it's 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 pretty. It definitely has revolutionized uh, the the industry. You know, it's cool to hear these people talk about these kind of different ways of finding collaboration and going around the world to these exotic places. You know, last episode we talked to Maya and Randy Sharp, and Maya talked about these these songwriting um, kind of camps that they put together in these castles over there. And, and Billy talked about the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think he even mentioned uh, Maya as one of the, the yeah. people that he had had seen over there. And um, it, it is pretty wild to, to just imagine all these songwriters from different genres getting together and kind of pairing off or, or you know, getting together in little groups and coming up with songs. Um, it, it's fun to just kind of connect the dots where you'd go, well, how does Maya Sharp and Billy Mann have anything to do with each right. other? You know, um, they seem like kind of from, from different worlds. Uh, and then you go, oh, well, that's, that's how. Um, that's how they, they hung out in a castle together. <laughs> right, as one does. I want to go to a castle. We should hang out in a castle How together. do I make that happen? I think if we hung out in a castle together, I think we would be, um, I think we would write some some amazing hit songs. I think it would be like a, a really lame Scooby-Doo episode. <laughs> well, I think right now we should let uh, our listeners hear our interview with Billy, and you and I should go on Zillow and see if we can find a castle. <laughs> All right, let's get to it. Billy, welcome to Songcraft. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, now, I understand that you grew up in Philadelphia. Um, talk about the the first time as a kid that you heard music that really made an impression on you and, and made you want to even explore the idea of making your own music. It was a rich city to grow up in, but it was diverse in the same way that it has unfortunately remained a pretty segregated city. Mm. So I remember growing up, and on the one hand, when I was really young, I was exposed to all the singer-songwriters of the 70s, um, Carole King, Carly Simon, James Taylor, um, Jim Croce. But at the same time, you know, there's the OJs, there's all the TSOP records, right. uh, and, a, and a very strong songwriting talent. So between those two, Musically, I've always drifted back and forth. It's, it's never changed for me. Mm. Never went heavy into heavy rock and never went into country, though dabbled a little and had a lot of from a distance success there, but yeah. I never jumped in like a lot of folks have. But I, I would say in general, if you grew up in Philadelphia, you grew up really stuck in those in between those two types of music. And then when I went to high school, I graduated um I went to Kappa, which was an experimental music and art school with yeah. Boys to Men, The Roots, uh, Christian McBride, Joey DeFrancesco, G Love. I mean, wow. it was like it was an insane <laughs> group of kids yeah, all geez. in this school in the middle of the project, the South Philly. But it was it, it's a great city to be from. Yeah. Well, actually, I do want to ask you though about that uh, Philadelphia School for the Creative and Performing Arts uh, about how that education kind of helped shape you, you know, in addition to what you were hearing and what you were seeing, how having a really focused music education shaped who you became as a songwriter and musician. Well, I want to say that the education really came down to the teachers because mm -hmm. the school and Philadelphia inner city public schools did not really educate us that well. Mm -hmm. um, I want to tell a different story, but it's just not the case. Right. Yeah. But kids who went through the school with the right teachers really came out ahead, and it just so happened on the music side, there was a teacher, his name was uh, David King, and he was I, about as 
politically incorrect as you can get. You have to imagine <laughs> on a school or in the projects of South Philly, the guy weighs about 300 and got to weigh 325, 330 wow. pounds. He is going through uh, New Testament Bible scriptures to the vocal students while smoking cigarettes. This is all in the school, <laughs> in the classroom, right. while smoking cigarettes. But it was a, but he was, I would say if you asked any of the kids that went to school during his tenure, every single one of them would thank him and wow. that he was the reason why they succeeded. And I had this conversation with uh, one of the guys that works for me today, and uh, I'm very, I, I believe in that sort of, not so much gotcha moment with people you work with, but I, I like people who come prepared. And mm. that really was the cornerstone of his discipline, mm. his disciplinarian approach. So if you walked in and whether you were singing, you know, a gospel song or you were singing classical music, he'd have the whole choir sing and he would look around and he'd see who was prepared and who wasn't, who was faking it and just mouthing along. <laughs> and then he'd stop the choir and he'd say, Paul, you take it from here, and three. And wow. then you'd stand there and you'd have to deliver it. If you didn't, he'd throw you out and you would be basically laughed at. Wow. And that, it was, it was, <laughs> and it was intense because these, none of us were kids from any, you know, great means in terms of our background, but mm. it, the passion to, to please this guy was in part because he, it was like he loved, he loved it so much, and yeah. that really was contagious. So for my, at least my generation that went through the school, um, I think people would argue that he was really the best part of it. Well, you know, after college, I understand that you ended up in San Francisco for a while and, and did some busking with your guitar down at Fisherman's Wharf. Um, and I'm curious what, what that experience taught you about how to engage an audience quickly, how to grab an audience's attention. Um, well, I, I mean, I was a street busker everywhere, including Philly, and um, I had a Dotson Sentra, and I think you guys had a Dotson. One of <laughs> I did. Yeah. Uh, the Dotson uh, 510, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I lived in this car. It was, this, it was I, li I literally lived in it for over a year. Wow. Um, and so I moved to, to move from Philly to San Francisco was a, a series of um, start and stops. You know, I drove to Asheville, North Carolina. I was there for a minute, and then I drove on to the next, and I would stay for a week, and sometimes if I could get a job working, whether it's a restaurant or a bar, um, and then play gigs. And But the the reason why San Francisco was so um, significant was that I was at my lowest point in terms of I had really run out of money. Mm. I was rented a, a room in a house with a bunch of guys in a very, very dodgy neighborhood. And then one of the guys said, you know, you got to come up with whatever the money was, like, 300 bucks roughly or 280 bucks I think right. to, to pay the rent or you're, you're basically out and I had gotten fired from the job that I was working at this is a true story I worked at the futon shop selling <laughs> futons and fell asleep on the job which is why I, I was fired but I fell asleep because I was playing gigs all night the nights before right. so I'd come in for you know at 8 o'clock in the morning having just gotten home from playing at whatever 3 and right. you know it's Actually, I learned a great deal just from that very dark period, but right. I, re I went to the Fisherman's Wharf, I got my guitar out, and I basically was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit here and play, and I'll play until I make the money, or I'm not going back. And the first day, I made a little less than 20 bucks <laughs> playing, you know, whatever um, Tom McLean covers or right. yeah. that kind of thing. And, 
and then the, and then I wound up staying over there, and I stay, early in the morning, and if you know that area at all, it's very much a, um, a honeymooner's um, delicacy. It's right, like right. beautiful views of the Golden Gate Bridge. It's, it's stunning. Yeah. So around 10.30 in the morning, as people started to trickle in, and a couple came up to me, and ultimately they told me that they were on their honeymoon, and I had this idea... I said, you know, how about I write a song about how you guys met? You tell me how you met, and I'll write a song about it in five minutes or less for five dollars. And at wow. the end, if you don't like the song, you don't have to give me the five dollars. <laughs> so they told me, and then I wrote down like every rhyme, you know, plain rain, Spain, whatever, right. <laughs> anything I could put together. <laughs> and then I, I just wrote down as many notes as they could tell me. I used a really the most simple chord progression, you know, kind of a one, six, four, five. And and then I sang the song, and I, I figured out what the hook line would be based on what one of them said. I don't remember what it was, but it was like, you know, I never knew it was you until later that night, and that's the hook, or whatever <laughs> right, it was. Right. And then they gave me 20 bucks. Wow. <laughs> nice. And I was like, the next couple walked up to me, and the first thing I asked them was, so how did you guys meet? Which, of course, <laughs> led to me very close. And then I made, the, I made more than enough money um, that day and stayed out there and made more and it really it changed the course of my life wow. I know that's some kind of and, that's and even more interesting is that um, I wound I wound up returning to San Francisco and it was became a, an important market for me you know yeah. later down yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, in the mid-90s, you landed a record deal with DV8 Records, which was an imprint of the A&M label. Um, kind of take us from playing on the street to that first record deal and the ways that your story kind of unfolded in those years. The short version of this is that once I left San Francisco and then I wound up going to Miami and I lived there doing the same thing, playing on the street and I worked jobs um, and then went to London, did the same thing, and got very close on a couple of record deals, um, I really started to get into the process of co-writing, which wasn't something that I ever did. Right. I was of the mindset that, you know, a singer-songwriter writes their own songs and with no one else. And even though the first hit I ever had in the 90s, around that era, I had written on my own, which was Three of Family by Dana Dawson, who... By the way, it was a one-off hit, but it was a massive record in the U.K. and the first um, top five single I ever had. Right. But I realized that collaborating was a lot more fun and was just better business. Yeah. And I wound up going back to New York from London, played gigs. I had a really inexperienced manager who was a great guy, um, and, uh, and I was I'm very loyal, very much a Philadelphia thing. Um, and I stayed with him as long as I could um, until, you know, the two of us were living in a in a tiny hole of a, an apartment on the Upper West Side. And then I met Rick Wake um, through Greg Wattenberg, also still a good friend of mine, um, who uh, was in a band at the time, also signed to Rick Wake. Um, and Rick, uh, Rick signed me to a publishing, production, artist, producer deal right um and you know that's really how it started for me mm. and then from there i was you know shopped around but this time shopped around by someone who had a uh a lot more strength in the marketplace right. and then yeah. I eventually i met al cafaro at a&m and got signed yeah well then in, in 1995 you released your first album your self-titled album 
and included the singles Ain't Gonna Keep Me Hanging Around and Turn Down the World. You know, we can all look back uh, kind of on the early days and we find the things that, that we love about what we did and some things that we wish we could change. When you look back at that record, what are you most proud of and what, if anything, do you wish you could change about it? What a great question. You know what? I want to, I, you know, there's that expression, art is never finished, only abandoned. <laughs> Interesting. I think that I, quite frankly, I think I had no business being an artist, yeah. I don't think that I was fully, uh, fully formed mm. in the sense that I, I, I was so driven and so ambitious to get to what felt like quote there end quote would be that when I got there, even though I had a lot of songs that I felt proud of, I really was uh, it. It was a bunch of people, including myself, you know, all so focused on our ambition to mm. make a record and put it out that it, it, I think it lost something along the way. Yeah. I, I found recently a bunch of demos that I did on my own before I met Rick in a shitty studio in, in Brooklyn on a 16-track analog machine, and I listened to it, and I was like, oh, th that, what did I do to that guy? You know? <laughs> um, yeah. and, and, and I don't, but that said, you know, I feel like I I can't I, I feel like the first album that I put out, which and by the way both records wildly wildly unsuccessful, <laughs> um, but but you know but 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 successful in the areas that you know the true musician in me wanted, which was I got the I built relationships and got the credibility from Sting, from Carol King, mm -hmm. from you know my heroes, and and I got the experience of going through the label system, warts and all, and and going out to radio, understanding, not just understanding the process at radio, but meeting, you know, a lot of critical people that are still my friends. I would have never had relationships with John Ivey, who is now, you know, a major national player at radio, or Tom Pullman I met when he was at KRBE in Texas, now the president of iHeart. Right. Um, or Leanne Callahan, who managed Beyonce mm -hmm. for many years. I mean, these are all people I met during that era, and so many of them, and the list is so long, um, I, think I never would have been able to build those relationships um, had I not had that experience. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I don't look back at it as a, a total failure. I think my critics would look back and say, you know, you know, he was shitty at that, too. I think the people that know me know that that was a part of what led me to do a lot of what I've done for the bulk of my career. Well, you know, and it's it's funny how many writers, folks that we talk to, and I would even put myself in this category, who you almost have to go through that process of thinking that you're going to have an artist career to get to the thing that you really are, which is a writer or a producer. Um, and I wonder if that comes from just sort of that's the milieu that we get used to seeing where you know watching MTV or whatever. You, you think, oh, well, if you write songs, then you need to also sing them. You need to be the one that presents them. But sometimes you just have to get through that period, and then you find, okay, this is who I am. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I also think that it's much. It, it appears to be a much simpler um, path. Mm. It's a, it's, it, it's a specious glance. It appears a lot clearer to be. Oh, um, I write songs, I sing them, and therefore I'm going to 
I'm going to go and sing them and become a famous singer. And of course, right. that is so commercialized now with The Voice and right. American right. Idol and all these platforms that are coming and going. That that sort of that that is what is ingrained in us. And you know, there is a part of you that has to be pretty delusional to pursue this, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and pretty entitled and pretty yeah. you know pretty full of yourself to go after it. And at the same time, there's this deep, deep-seated want and need for attention and yeah. validation and, and to be loved. And Somewhere uh, my whole family I, is nodding their heads right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's, and, and truth be told, and this is, you know, I've had, I, I, I have had an amazing story up to this point, but for the people that have done any, you know, any digging at all, it doesn't take much to learn that I, I was married really young and my wife died of stomach cancer. Um, I was right in the middle of releasing my first album. And I think that when you look back at losing people that you love, um, and for us, it wasn't like I lost, I was married for 20 years or 30 or 40, and I think it's painful for anyone going through something that like that kind of loss, but it, I was mourning a future because mm. we were so young. Yeah. And I think that what I learned really quickly as a result of feeling, and this is going to sound really um, Dr. Phyllis, so you got to just let me have a moment, <laughs> but it, as a result of feeling love for the first time that was real, I really didn't need or have that, that thirst for celebrity. Yeah, that I right. think somebody has to have hmm. in order to pursue this bottleneck, already bottleneck uh, environment yeah. um, to be loved by other people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that in retrospect, that was one of the parting gifts I got from, from uh, my wife who had passed away. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, and, and, your second album, Earthbound, from 1998, the, the title track to that record is this stripped-down, really beautiful meditation on, on saying goodbye to a loved one. But I don't want you to be earthbound You don't need my grief to weigh you down Just before you fly just try to give me one good yeah, ha having been through what you went through and, and having uh, experienced that kind of very unexpected loss uh, at such a young age in what ways did that impact you in terms of your artistic and, and creative spirit mm. well that whole record was a blur for me, um, yeah. for uh, all the all the obvious reasons. I think that there's a point I I think where you see a lot of artists after they have an enormous amount of success, then they wake up with a case of the why the fuck not, and then they start doing shit that they want to do. Right. And <laughs> um, and and that's and by the way, and the privilege of um having the money, the resources, or the fan base, or whatever it is, to be able to pursue that um, is in part what provides that the freedom to do those things. Mm. Because 
you have a fallback position. For me, at the time, not only did I not have a fallback position, but I didn't have a fall-in position. I didn't have any... I, I felt like everything that seemed... I, I remember being madly in love with Rima. I remember getting that record deal. I remember having any amount of money in my pocket. And then all of a sudden, I had no money. Mm. My first album was a disaster. And I had to regroup. And I went to France to a songwriter retreat, which they just started redoing, reintroducing at Miles Copeland's castle. Yeah. And this is in the, right. and that's where I met Mark Hudson and Carol King and Greg Wells and um, just like, just uh, Maya Sharp and a host of, of incredible people. And obviously from legends to, you know, to beginners like me, um, we were all there and everything shifted for me. Mm-hmm. Um, including how comfortable and happy I was in Europe. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Well, you know, from that period of the first uh, couple records and the, the Billy Man artist period, um, then we start seeing some real growth in the life of Billy Man, the songwriter, as one of the first major artists to record one of your songs was Celine Dion, who put Treat Her Like a Lady on her Let's Talk About Love album. Tell us how that came about. Um, you know what? The I had two songs on that album, which today, um, to give people perspective on how the songwriting market has changed and the and the revenue has shifted. Um, Celine, that album sold I think thirty six million copies, <laughs> which is more records than most labels rosters. Collectively, oh, right, um, yeah. Well, <laughs> let alone in a, <laughs> in a decade year, now, <laughs> you know. So, <laughs> I mean, we laugh, but it, but we cry, um, yeah, right? But, exactly. <laughs> but that was the rationale behind signing the deal with Rick Wake's company was uh, his ability to leverage some of his relationships for the songwriters, and that basically. Most indie companies are like that, including my own, where the people that are driving the business, you, you really try to leverage your relationships as, as much as possible to kickstart your writers and give them opportunities. And Diana King was the artist who originally had cut the song, and had uh, she had had a platinum record for that song already. Hmm. And then the second song that Celine cut was a song called Amar Haciendo El Amor, which hmm. was an interpreted version of a song called You Only Love Once from my first album. So oh. the first album was not completely forgotten. Right, not a but, loss. Um, <laughs> but and it was really just a hustle. But I will say that I remember being most shocked to learn, tongue-in-cheek for your um, pleasure, to learn that Celine Dion had, had co-written Treat Her Like a Lady um, <laughs> with us. And I... I and none of us had ever met her. Yeah. Interesting. So, Funny how that happened. Um, <laughs> anyway, but it was, it was, uh, and that was really, and that actually became quite an issue, right. because I remember that, as I mentioned before, during that trip in France, Mark Hudson and Carol King had written this song called um, 
You Are the Reason, mm. which Celine recorded, and they tried to elbow her onto the publishing. Yeah. And Carol King basically said, absolutely no. And yeah. it was like a, a pretty big controversy, and it almost got embarrassing for the people that were leading the charge of taking publishing from writers. Wow. Yeah. Um, and that's one of those great moments where Carol... Um, you know, is an unsung hero, right. although clearly a sung hero. But in that moment, and that was uh, that that was at the point of your career where you're like, man, I'm not Carol King yet. I can't, you know. Well, <laughs> I, I'm never gonna. I'm, I am. I'm never gonna be right. Carol King, and nobody will be. But I, I think it's more that it was a point where I started to realize that this is a long term career that yeah. I have to I have to approach everything that I'm doing with. Um, the same ambition and drive, but I have to think, I have to see a much longer horizon line from, right, from myself. Right. Yeah, which I think is a is an important point that being a songwriter is about art, but it's also about strategy and it's about forging the right relationships, making the right decisions. You know, there is that. Um, all, all art, if you're going to make a living at it, is also a, a business, and you do have to approach it from from both uh, perspectives. Around the time in the '90s when I when I, I I had toured with Sting as the support act, right? And he had encouraged me actually to spend time in Sweden, and that was around 1996, right? Um, because there was great jazz there, and really the first charting records I had were in the UK and in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the reason was that my contract that I had signed many layers of it. One of them, um, you know, I remember having a conversation with Rick Wake by phone, and he was like, "There, why?" he's asking me, why the fuck are you in Sweden? And I'm like, <laughs> right. there's a lot happening here. It's like, nothing is happening in Sweden. And I remember, I had just met Dennis Pop, and, you know, this is just before Max Martin had, right. you know, right. started just devouring the planet with amazingness. <laughs> and, um, you know, and there was a, and I was there, and really, that's where the, you know, where the records I was doing started to happen. Right. So, so I stayed there, and I worked with. Um, I, I won a Swedish Grammy, or um, the um, the records that we were doing there would translate and sort of slowly migrate over into continental Europe. Um, uh, I worked with Robin, who I later signed when I was president of EMI, mm, right. um, and his family, which was the UK record, and I followed that up. But I really got so involved over there that I was hired to executive produce records for BMG, Sony, and um, and Warner at the time. Oh, and that's nice. all happening while the Celine Dion cuts started happening and cuts on other records started happening. Yeah. And I, I, I honestly didn't know if I'd ever go back to the U.S. Huh. Interesting. You began seeing more and more of your songs get cut. Uh, in 2001, the band Dakota Moon released the song Looking for a Place to Land, uh, which you actually wrote with the group. Um, and that became your first U.S. charting single as a songwriter and, and hit number 27 on Billboard's Adult Top 40 chart. Um, and then several months after that, you had your first number one song on the Billboard Adult Contemporary chart with Daryl Hall and John Oates' Do It For Love, which you um, co-wrote with Daryl and John. I'll try. I don't need any other reason. I feel it deep inside. I'll do it for 
fact, I think you co-wrote about a half dozen songs on that Do It For Love album. Um, talk about how you hooked up with those guys and, and how that writing process came together with guys who are not only uh, music legends, but kind of uh, hometown legends, too. Daryl and John and working with them as a Philly kid and having grown up you know, on their music was, it's better than a number one. It's like right. a number one, you know, bold-faced uh, underline. <laughs> right. <laughs> How'd you hook up with those guys? Um, I, I toured with them. Oh, um, cool. I was out, I was a support act for them and, you know, their relationship, which today I think is really, is pretty good. I think their relationship at the time was, you know, a bit rocky and yeah. I knew their management well. Um, and, uh, and I had a really nice relationship with them and I always sort of said, Hey, you know, anytime the guys want to write or, or, <laughs> or do anything, I just, you know, I'm available. I'm available. <laughs> right. But I got along with them both yeah. really well. And they're very different cats, but I got along with them, both of them really well, and still do. Yeah. Um, and uh, and Do It For Love was really prompted from, I mean, it was just a very real moment. We were all in London. Um, Daryl had a house in Chelsea. Uh, we had a few drinks. Um, uh, it was a late-night conversation that was really... Um, got pretty aggressive and I sort of laid into both of the guys like so what are you doing all this for with all this business bullshit like what's wrong with you and why, <laughs> why do you even do music if this is all you worry about right and the song sort of came out from a very holy place nice it's interesting that you say that because uh, you know in 2001 you formed Stealth Entertainment you began to develop artists writers and producers and it that kind of began a dual stream in your life um, where you are kind of balancing like a, a really business-heavy side of it, along with being an artist and a producer. Talk about kind of having those two sides uh, to your personality and to your work, being the business guy on one hand and being the artist guy on the other. Um, uh, just necessity. Yeah. My wife was pregnant with our first kid. Um, I, had, I went on to have some pretty wonderful managers, um, but I found myself doing most of the hustling, hmm. which, you know, for any songwriter listening, if you think that your manager or your publisher, uh, no matter who they are, no matter how, you know, wonderful they are, if you think that they're going to do the lion's share of the work, then you need to refresh your memory by looking at the term sheet of your deal. <laughs> which, and the term sheet says that you are the majority shareholder in your career. Hmm. And these folks should work their asses off for you, but ultimately you have to do the heavy lifting. Hmm. And yeah. I realized that giving, um, even, to, I mean, great people, all of whom I'm still friends with, but giving managers, you know, 20% of what I earned when I was the one really going out and hustling hard or felt that I was the one going out and hustling hard, I couldn't do. Yeah. So stealth was really formed to manage myself and then to try my hand at, at managing some other people right. and trying to develop projects and work towards the ancillary revenue. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the early 2000s, you were all over the adult contemporary charts with uh, Michael Bolton's recording of Dance With Me, um, Art Garfunkel's Bounce, um, and another number one single with Jim Brickman and Christy Starling's Sending You a Little Christmas. So
And from a songwriting perspective, when you're writing, say, a, a Christmas song, for example, you have this very particular end goal in mind. You know, this is going to be a holiday-themed thing. This is serving a particular purpose. Um, as a creative person, do you like having a specific project or a, or a specific theme that you're focused on, or do you prefer to kind of go into a writing session and just kind of go with the flow? Um, I think a Christmas song is a little deceiving. Um and because clearly we all know the end game, you know, Santa <laughs> and, and, you know, the morning. It, we, we, we have the vocabulary pretty much set out for us, and now we just have to try not to, um, to screw it up. Right. Um, but, um, but, you know, and that song, uh, frankly, has had, um, it's been, for me, amazing. It's been, it's been, it was a number one with, with Christy and David Foster and I worked on that together. And then it was, um, number five, um, the year before last, nominated for a Grammy because J- Johnny Mathis um, recorded it, yeah. um, which was a thrill for me. But I, I, I would say that um, I think that, as simple as it sounds, you just have to write great, honest songs. Mm-hmm. I think that people can most of the time, and I'm not sorry, this doesn't necessarily apply to sort of like the EDM music. But I would say anything that is song-oriented, meaning that there's a lyrical narrative that someone has to follow, I think people can smell truth or or bullshit yeah. pretty easily. Yeah, yeah. So I would tell someone, you know, whether you're writing for Kelly Clarkson or you're writing for um, for a boy band or writing for whomever, I think that it will resonate with the people who are the decision makers if they can feel your pain or your excitement or love or passion or whatever it is, that that is as authentic. It, it will be felt as deeply as, as from the place it came right. when it was yeah. created. Yeah, You know, and it, those songs that Scott mentioned, uh, the Michael Bolton stuff, the Art Garfunkel and the Christy Starling, uh, unlike some of the previous songs, these are songs that you were producing also. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit how you first got into the production part of things and how that kind of affected your approach to songwriting. You know, now, you know, people are, you know, there's almost no such thing as a demo where you, you're usually working with somebody who's kind of producing a master right in the moment or, or already kind of involved in the inside of the record. Um, but at that point, how did that begin to work for you? Well, it didn't actually in the beginning, it didn't work well at all. <laughs> I was doing a lot of production work for Rick, um, Rick Wake and so were a bunch of other guys. Hmm. Um, like a lot of other people, you know, there's sort of the producer and then there's the, like, shadow producer. You look at a lot of, uh, you know, hip-hop records today, you know, one of the things that's interesting to see, like, these young track guys who, you know, it's sort of, they hand their track off to a dude that hands it off to somebody else right. who gets in the room, and then they're all the producer of the track that right. really originated with a guy on a laptop, you know, on, like, Fruity Loops, <laughs> sending right. it through. And, you know, so... During the 90s, I was producing records, but I was producing them overseas. So, you know, you couldn't look me up on the whatever music guide in the U.S. and expect to find a lot of those releases. Really, what it came down to is that I could not compete with, you know, Rick Wake or David Foster or Walter A., all of whom are collaborators of mine and people that I, you know, I, I still think the world of. And I just how can I compete with these guys? Yeah. yeah. And so what I started doing is I would go to the A&R people when they liked a song of mine and say, let me produce it. I'll do it for free. Hmm. If you like it, you only have to pay me like whatever, $4. Right. 
um, versus you're going to pay this guy to do it, and they're going to, not all of them, but a lot of them are going to hire me to work from the back, right. and you're going to pay 10 times. Right. So at least give me this, the opportunity to fail. And I think that that was really, and continues to be, you know, all anybody asks for. Mm. I think a great songwriter, a great artist or producer, they just want the opportunity to fail. <laughs> it's, they want to win, but just play it or put my song out there or give me that moment right. so that I can be judged on the merits of my music and not whether I'm, you know, got into the soul house with somebody yeah. right you know yeah that's great yeah well you had two pop singles that hit the billboard chart on the same day in uh, late december of 2003 which were pink's god is a dj which we'll talk about in a moment and uh jessica simpson's with you And Jessica's record became a, a radio hit, a, a top 20 single. And that's a really breezy record that that feels good. It's got like a lot of positive energy. It's the kind of record that just makes you smile. Um, and I've noticed that a lot of your songs, even the songs that deal with sadder topics, are typically um, hopeful. And I'm curious if you consciously try to maintain a certain uh, life perspective that comes through in your writing. Um, I, I certainly hope so. Um, mm. I, I really, I think that, you know, it's a, it's a very rare moment where unless I'm actually uh, to one of the artists I'm writing with, um, where I, like, I was raised by a single mom, so I, I have a hard time writing any kind of a song with or for a female artist that's sort of like, woe is me. Right. It's probably right. the reason why Pink and I have been working together for now coming on 14 years. Yeah. Uh, not just because she's awesome and brilliant and from Philly and like uh, I'm like one of the closest people in my life, but from day one, it's not her thing to, right. she is, you know, and I think a lot of that is a Philadelphia mentality. Mm. Um, but yeah, I appreciate you saying that. And, and yeah, absolutely. I, I don't want to, I don't think that negative is is ever the way to go. Yeah. I just don't. I don't think it's the way to go in songwriting. I don't think it's the way to go on social media. I don't think it's the way to go in the way that people conduct themselves. Yeah, I just, right. you know, it's like the belief that by putting other people down, you are making yourself look good. That's just never the case. Right. Right. That's that's right. certainly a good word for this moment in time. Um, you know, and talking about a little more about Pink for a moment. Um, you know, you've worked with her extensively as a producer and collaborator. You guys mm -hmm. have co-written about 15 or 20 songs that have appeared mm -hmm. on her albums on Try This, I'm Not Dead, Fun mm -hmm. House, The Truth About Love. But uh, tell us how you and Pink first met and started working together. Um, we met, um, it's one of those wonderful residual um, benefits of my very, very short, unsuccessful solo career was <laughs> that I got a couple of believers here and there um, that made it more successful, maybe mm. retroactive success. And Pink's manager at the time, um, Craig Logan, um, knew me from those solo records. Okay. 
and she was really changing it up, and she had just, you know, she she's having some success. She was they were looking for the right songwriters, and um, he remembered that I was from Philly. He was then reminded by uh, a guy who works at Sony ATV named Jim Velutato, who's a oh, wonderful sure. guy yeah. and a, a, a longtime publisher and just like a just a blue chip guy, and he had sort of reinforced that. And then it was like trying to get together, and we sat down. And I had this God as a DJ thing in my head for a long time, and I wanted to go to her with an idea. I didn't want to go to her just like, "Hey, you're cool, I'm cool, let's <laughs> let's do something." You know, it was like yeah. I wanted to be very specific. And right. um, and we met, and uh, I had the idea that I did with the guy um, um, Johnny Davis, who today works uh, as a publisher. Mm. Um, really super talented guy and engineer and we had worked on this track but I had this hook in my head and anyway I sat down with her and it was I don't know it was like noon and uh, she asked if I wanted a drink or whatever and I was like I looked at my watch and I was like it's noon I'll have a whiskey and we laughed and she had a whiskey and we like sat there and we just talked and a lot of it was I, I, we just connected it was mm. I, I wasn't selling and she wasn't buying or, or selling we were just I don't know. It was a very unusual. Uh, it was an unusual relationship. There was no honeymoon process. It was just a comfort level there. Yeah. And if you look at a lot of the people, people you've interviewed, um, you know, just look at Desmond Child's relationship with you know John Bon Jovi. Hmm. Um, if you look at you know obviously John and Daryl's relationship, but if you look really through the course of a lot of great songwriters. They, we're very tribal beings. I mean, hmm. you tend to congregate amongst the people that you connect with the most, and yeah. and when you have a good thing going, you stay with it. And and, and your relationship with with Pink has, you know, you can just even just look at the longevity of it and see that that's a real relationship. You know, you don't tend to keep coming back to the same well if it feels poison. Um, mm, and that's right. Probably the best known song that the two of you co-wrote is, is "Stupid Girls," which is a huge pop hit in two thousand six. Talk a little bit about putting that song together. Well, you know, Supergirls was really about commentary. And I think what people, uh, people know this about Pink now, but Alicia is very much, she is who she is. It's mm-hmm. not like on and off the court, she's different people. Right. I yeah. mean, she's a, an amazing mom and, really, and, and, and an amazing human being. But who she is, is the music. It's not like, there's, there's no disconnect. And at the time, we were really culturally coming out of the sort of 90s Silicon NASDAQ boom years. Yeah. And it was also, we were suffering the, the, the hangover of 9-11. Hmm. And I think that social commentary, uh, you know, we, that's been the theme of, of a couple of records. I mean, Dear Mr. President was top 10 in countries all over the world. Yeah. Um, Clear Channel, the Texas-based um, <laughs> lovely radio communications company <laughs> didn't air it as much yeah. but um you know it was a very anti-george w bush record right and it resonated and charted all over the place and like stupid girls it was social commentary yeah. i think that i don't look back at stupid girls and 
can talk about it as like this great songwriting experience. What it was, it was a great relief to be able to put social commentary out there. And I remember mm. that Clive Davis was really opposed, and he was he said in a meeting, you know, America loves these girls, you know, meaning mm. Paris Hilton and yeah. Lindsay yeah. Lohan. And it was even more interesting because we were also in part parodying what Jessica Simpson had become, although I wasn't involved, obviously, in the making of the video, but it was kind of tough for me because I just had With You was number one right. at pop radio, <laughs> and God is a DJ had come out and was top ten outside. And by the way, I was convinced that God is a DJ would be would be the one that was the bigger hit than With You. Yeah. But you, you know, the whole point for me is when I look at her, at Pink's career in our relationship is that she's completely untethered in terms of how she approaches what she has to say. Yeah. It's yeah. not like, well, I can't say this because people will, or I don't want to say that. She's just like, I, this is me, this is what I do. And by the way, it is so liberating. So yeah. Stupid Girls, you know, to your question, really is not a song that I look back on and I think, you know, I don't think the craft of, craft of songwriting, there's like sexual content in that that I wouldn't put in. But in terms of the power that music can give to social view of the world, it's yeah. so untapped. I am so frustrated that we live in a world with refugee crisis and wars going on and the kind of xenophobia and bloviating politics that, like, where are the artists? Like, where are yeah. the artists? Where are yeah. the protests on? Where is anybody saying anything? You know, that to me is is wildly frustrating. She it's is crazy. just a breath yeah. of fresh air. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Well, you mentioned that she is untethered, and that, that uh, brings to mind her uh, very memorable performance at the 2010 Grammys where uh, Pink did this Cirque du Soleil-style acrobatics routine on an aerial ribbon. Yeah, to, thank God uh, she was tethered in that moment. And, at, well, at least. I don't think she was. She was she ceiling. Was she, what? she was like full-on going Cirque du Soleil-style oh on God. that thing. Um, no, no, there, she was she was untethered. I mean, I was like <laughs> on the edge of my seat, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, in in that song, "Glitter in the Air," I mean, that you wrote with her, that was another top twenty single, and um, you know, so much of of pop music today um, is beyond the song. And you know, when I think of that song, I think of that particular performance. Um, and, and there's a lot of music that has become about um, bigger media than just hearing it on the radio. It's about those memorable stage performances. It's about um, social media. It's about the visuals. Um, and I'm wondering, this is kind of a strange question, but in the time that you have been in the business, that you've been a songwriter, um, has that changed things in any way from, from the idea of conceiving of a song that will be heard on the radio to thinking about how a song might be presented um, with the visuals and everything else? Well, I mean, it's, it's difficult because now the visuals are not necessarily visuals that are big screen vi visuals or even TV screen visuals. It's now mobile phone visuals. Right. I mean, Glitter in the Air was, uh, you know, it was a spectacular moment. It was a song that was very, very important to, to me personally. I love the song, you know, for all kinds of reasons. Um, but I think now the visual piece is, it's so interwoven into everything because people are not just listening to music as their primary activity. In fact, 
they're not really listening to it as their primary activity. Yeah. And I think there was a study that was done that said something like, I don't know, 70% of people um, listening to music have, you know, two screens going at one time, or right. they're doing two activities while they're doing it. So, you know, I think that, I mean, this is a, a much more overarching social uh, social question, but I think how people are digesting and experiencing music is changing. I, sure, I think sure. concert goers, you know, it's like you go to a show and you just see a bunch of kids holding up their phones, video or, you know, digitally recording yeah. the visual yeah, at the show. Right. It's like, and Alan Stone, who's, who's a, a songwriter that um, we represent as a publisher, you know, he's one of the greatest live shows that I've seen in terms of, you know, just no smoke and mirrors, just amazing musicians and great songs and vocals. Right. And, you know, the first thing he does at every show is he's like, you know, take your picture now and let's set down our phones and be together because yeah. that's yeah, music. Right. But that's just not the way we're experiencing it. Yeah. Anymore. You know, this is obviously a, a podcast about songwriting and, um, you know, you have done so much more than just writing songs. I mean, your, your company stealth was acquired by EMI in 2007. You eventually became chief creative officer at EMI and then wound up moving over to, uh, to BMG for a while before becoming the CEO and chair of a, of a hybrid indie publisher and label known as green and bloom top line where, where you are today. Um, and of course we could probably spend just as much time talking about your various roles, um, in that regard as well, but just to kind of boil that executive experience and, and music business experience, you, you've touched on it, um, but f in terms of the way that it impacts songwriters, what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen in the music industry over your career, both in terms of scary changes and exciting changes? You know, when I started at EMI, uh, and eventually, I was I wound up president of International. Then I eventually took on U.S. Latin, in addition to the Latin business for the three and a half years or so that I was there. What I found amazing was that there was no iPhone, and then suddenly there was an iPhone. Hmm. There was MySpace, and then MySpace sort of went away. And and you know, Facebook began and exploded, mm -hmm. and Twitter began and exploded, and Instagram has now exploded, and, you know, and we go on and on. And then what I think is the most telling piece of it was that driving a company at that altitude, at that age, I, I, was, I was terrible at country club politics. I, I'm not there to do the back nine in, in the Hamptons. Mm -hmm. I, I really, it's not my thing. I'm, like, very focused on my family life and focus on work. Um, I think that the, what I learned through that process, if I can apply that to songwriters, is that, one, it still comes down to the greatest songs, right. really, in the end. Two, that networking is critical, but authenticity is more critical. Mm. Meaning, you know, you can befriend everyone in the world, but in the end, the music must do the heavy lifting. Well, it's, yeah. it, you know, even, even if you can maneuver your way to getting a single release at radio, it's got to react. Mm. It has to, the music has to do the talking. And I think a lot of songwriters, because now today, because of the technology, because of GarageBand is in every computer that you buy from Apple, yeah. to, 
for one to consider themselves a songwriter or an artist or a producer, the criteria is as different as is the technology. Hmm, yeah. So, and then you have a bunch of people who walk around going, well, my shit's as good as this. Like, how come this is a hit and not mine? <laughs> right. I think that there's room for everybody, hmm. um, but the pipeline is just, it's just very different. Yeah. Yeah. And the number of releases that record companies put out you know, are less and less and less. Yeah. The number of albums that are put out are fewer and fewer and fewer. And the competition to just get into anywhere with a format is also difficult. But I'm not saying this to talk people out of being a songwriter, but I am saying it because it, it was a sober reality that I had to deal with in terms of driving the P&L, which I, my P&L was a big P&L, like mm -hmm. over half a billion dollars that I was responsible for seeing through a roster performance, oh. um, you know, on a quarterly basis. And it's, yeah. it's no joke. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you have continued to balance your work as an executive with your creative work as a writer and producer. And um, a couple of recent highlights are a couple songs on Cher's Closer to the Truth album um, from 2013 and the song Freezer Burn on Alan Stone's Radius album from 2015. Um, it's been a pretty remarkable and, and diverse career thus far. So I guess uh, the, the question is, is there anything that you still hope to accomplish that you haven't done yet in the music world? <laughs> it's funny. I think that I really just want to continue to have a work-life balance. Yeah. Um, I'm, I've never been somebody who's been obsessed over, you know, sort of traditional milestones. I, I think that, that that's a trap. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know so many songwriters who have had hit songs who are miserable, yeah. lonely. Their relationships are terrible. They're bitter. I mean, they're bitter with money in their pocket and a hit song, and they're unhappy. Yeah. I, I, I can't tell you enough how frustrating that is for me, um, but it is, it's, it's weird. It's surreal. Yeah. Um, but I, and so I always I kind of hashtag this, you know, hashtag the hit life, but I, that's what I want. I want to mm. continue to have the hit life, not the hit song. The hit life is, you know what? I, I love my wife. I love my kids. I, I love being involved in the community. I love the people that I work with. I love looking on the bright side. I love not being cynical. That, to me, is, that's a win. Yeah. And I, I only want to sort of put that out there to people. And say, being in music doesn't necessarily mean you have to subscribe to this belief that you, you know, you have to be wearing a hoodie and be in sort of some in crowd somewhere in Silver Lake. You can actually be a music teacher and mm. impact the lives of a whole community. And you can have, there are just a lot of ways that you can make music an amazing part of your life. And if it makes me an idealist, I'm fine with that. Except I think that ultimately it can make people a lot healthier and make music a lot healthier. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, just having known some of the people that you've worked with and spent this time with you today, um, I can attest that that's the legacy that you're leaving is of, you know, a life that's more than just about songs. And, um, and along with that, the songs are pretty great, too. Yeah, so definitely. Thanks, uh, thanks for taking your time to spend with us today, Billy. It's been great. It's a pleasure. And uh, listen, I, I, I love what you guys are doing, and um, we'll talk, hopefully we'll talk soon somewhere out in the world. Thanks Sounds so great. much, man. Take care. Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, 
visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft. Rocket in the lights in the mall and create